my fault. All right. So, what's it like to be a Christian? Have you ever tried to explain to someone what it's like? Imagine that you've just given the gospel to someone, and they say, you know, before I make the leap, I just want to make sure I know what I'm getting into. So what kind of life can I expect as a Christian? What would you tell them? Well, if you look in the Bible, you'll get a few ideas. For example, the Christian is described in uh, 2 Timothy 2.3 as a good soldier, as a hardworking farmer in 2 Timothy 2.6, and as a precision boxer in 1 Corinthians 9.26. And you'll also find the Christian described as an endurance runner, a wandering nomad, even a newborn babe longing for milk. And there are more, of course. And all these word pictures reveal something unique about the Christian life. But you know, the Bible uses one picture far more than any of the others. In fact, this word appears more than 120 times in the New Testament. And what's that word? It's the word slave. Slave. To be a Christian is to be a slave. Now, if you're wondering why you may not see the word slave in your Bible 120 times, that's for, because for reasons we don't really have time to get into, the Greek word for slave, doulos, is very often mistranslated in your Bibles to the word servant or bondservant. When really the meaning is slave. Now, realize there's a big difference between a servant and a slave, right? A servant works because the terms of his employment suits him. Whenever he decides that that's no longer the case, he's free to pick up and leave, right? And in the end, the servant is his own man. But a slave is not employed, he is owned. He has property. He is not free to leave or to quit. And a slave doesn't get to live to please himself, right? He gets to live to please his master. A slave doesn't get to serve his own ambition. He serves the ambitions of what? His master. That's what it's like to be a slave. It's a total emptying of yourself for your master. And if you start looking, you'll see this word slave or doulos everywhere in the New Testament. For example, if you just look at the introductions of the New Testament letters, 2 Peter 1.1, Peter, a doulos, a slave. James 1.1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also calls himself a slave in the beginning of, for instance, Romans and Philippians. And at the end of Galatians, there's a fascinating little bit where he refers to the scars he's accumulated over many years of being persecuted as the brand marks of Jesus. That's probably a reference to the mark, a slave war that identified his master. So I need to point out, though, the Bible doesn't condone or promote slavery in any sense. And unfortunately, we don't have time to look at the verses today. It's a fascinating study if you ever get the opportunity. The Bible condemns, for instance, slave traders in 1 Timothy 1.10. And Paul tells slaves in 1 Corinthians 7.21 that if they can, they should obtain their freedom. 
But within the church, the apostles consistently made it clear there was no division between slave or free, but rather everybody would be treated equally. That's in Colossians 3.11. So while being against human slavery, the Bible takes advantage of this picture from everyday life that all at the time of this writing would have been familiar with. And it takes this picture to describe the Christian experience. So why then? Why does the Bible so consistently use the term slaves to describe Christians? Well, to answer that, let me tell you a story. Actually, this is your story. The story of your lives according to the Bible. Here it is. Once upon a time, you were sold into slavery. You were sold into slavery by your father, Adam. Your father, Adam, incurred a debt that he could not pay. We saw that a few months ago in Romans 5. And then by breaking, uh, he incurred that by breaking God's law in the Garden of Eden. And this debt that he incurred was transferred, inherited by us all. Colossians 2.14 refers to this as the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. And because of this debt, Adam and all his children, that means all of you, were sold into slavery. You're sold into slavery. And your master's name is sin. We saw that a few months ago, a few weeks ago in Romans 6 6. And we find that sin is a cruel and evil master. He's cruel and he's evil. He works you to the bone all hours of the day and night without rest. He puts you in chains and makes you carry heavy burdens. He makes you do things that hurt yourself and the people around you that you care about. Worst of all, he lies to you. Your master sin tells you that if you follow him, he will give you some type of reward, some satisfaction in exchange for serving him. But it's a lie because all you get is shame and regret. And then after a lifetime of faithful service to your master, when he's done with you, he will kill you without a second thought. And then you will spend eternity in hell forever. Now that's everyone in the world, everyone. But your story, if you're a believer, is a little different. Because one day, someone comes to that house. And this man who comes to the house, he looks right at you and he says, that one, I'll buy that one, and that one, and that one. And imagine your disbelief as this man straight up pays for your debt in full that you owe. And to your astonishment, you discover not only did he pay for the debt that you owe today, he also puts down more than enough to cover any debt you could possibly incur in the future. This man looks straight at you and says, Now you belong to me. That's in 1 Corinthians 3.23. And just like that, the shackles and chains that were so heavy on you drop to the floor and you follow your new master home. Listen, the day he took you home, you immediately stopped being a slave to sin and you started being a slave to your new master. Now, your new master, you quickly find, is 
the polar opposite of your old master. Your new master is a kind master. He's not only full of grace and mercy, he loves you with a great love. It's in Ephesians 2.4. He gives you the best of everything and lavishes you with his riches. That's in Ephesians 1.7. And when your new master asks you to do something, it always turns out in the end to actually have been for your good. Romans 8.28. Unlike your old master, this new master always delivers on his promises to you. And actually, you'll find that the rewards you get are far greater than your meager service could possibly deserve. We saw that actually last week in, in Dave's sermon. And wow, you know what kind of master this is? This is unbelievable. One day, this master comes and pulls out a chair for you. And he invites you to sit at his table, the very table that he serves his honored guests at. And your master, he girds up his loins like a slave would. And then he starts to wait on you. Your master serves you. That's in Luke 12, 37. He blows open the doors of his storehouse and you dine like a king. That's the kind of master he is. Well, the name of your new master, the one who came to purchase you from the slave market of sin, his name is Jesus Christ. And the price that he paid to buy your way out of slavery was his own blood. He gave his own life to sin, to pay for yours. Look, you don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. As a slave, this is beyond your wildest imagination that any master would treat his slaves this way. This is insane. But here, you know what? Your new master may be a good master. But don't forget, he is still your Lord And you are still his slave. And he bought you from that slave market. Make no mistake, he is very much entitled to your obedience. He's entitled to it. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, You are not your what? Own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. See, you belong to Jesus now. You are his property, and your whole life is no longer about pleasing yourself. It is about pleasing your master. That's what it means to be a slave of Christ. Now, I think this picture instantly clarifies so many things about the Christian life, doesn't it? It's pretty much the opposite of what we see in American Christianity. Here in American Christianity, it's all about our lives. It's all about our pleasures, our careers, our hobbies, our recreation, our fulfillment, our ambition. And you know, Jesus is just like some personal trainer that we call upon whenever we need just a little bit of a boost in those pursuits, isn't he? It's about him helping you get what you want. You know, help me get this job. Help me get this girl. Help me do well in school. Help me be happier. Help me be richer. And if that sounds like your brand of Christianity, you have to ask yourself, at what point does it stop being about you and your interests and start being about Jesus and his interests? That's what a true slave of Christ is concerned about. 
And if you're not that, then you, li- you got to listen up. If you're, a, if you're not a true slave of Christ, then you are still a slave to sin. And you have never been genuinely saved in the first place. But don't take that from me. Let's take that from the Apostle Paul. So let's go to the text. Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And of course, Dwayne was good enough to read for us our passage. So I don't have to do that now. But let me give you a little bit of background. In the previous chapters, Paul had outlined for us the concept of salvation by faith, right? That is, you were purchased by Jesus Christ from the slave market of sin into his household by grace alone. Grace alone. Nothing you did caused him to choose you. This was a completely and unmerited and free salvation. And the grace manifested then in you a faith, a faith in Jesus Christ as the sinless Son of God whose death paid the price for your sins. That's the faith that it generated in you. And when you believed, your eternal destiny was then instantly changed from eternal hell to eternal life. But that raised a question, didn't it? If you remember, after being saved, then what is to stop you from indulging a life of sin? After all, grace covered all your sin, right? Even in the future. So why not just keep on sinning? And then there'll just be more and more grace. Well, that's the, Paul, that's the question Paul asks and answered in Romans 6 verse 1. If you remember from a few, months, a few weeks ago, let's just read it. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And Paul's answer, we looked at last time from the first half of Romans 6, is that that is utterly impossible. It's impossible because when you became a Christian, you were not merely saved from the penalty of your sin. You were utterly transformed in your nature. That's part of being saved. You were united with Jesus Christ himself. You were united. We saw that in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. And the point is this. Someone who is united to Jesus Christ can't possibly emerge unchanged, right? It's impossible. Jesus is the most powerful and terrifying force in the entire universe, brighter and hotter than any sun. And to be joined with him and to be unchanged, it's impossible. It's at this point in the passage that we started seeing the language of slavery begin from last week or from last month. Someone united with Christ, verse 6 tells us, is no longer a slave to what? Sin. No longer a slave to sin. He is no longer a slave to sin because he has died. He who has died is what? Free from sin, verse 7, right? So it doesn't mean that you don't sin anymore, but it means that sin is no longer your master. You have now the power and the right to resist sin that you didn't have before. But now, for this morning, that raises another question. And the question is this. What then about the law of God? What about the law that God gave to Moses? You see, this would fly in the face of conventional thinking. The conventional thinking back then was that it was the law with its penalties of disobedience 
and its promises for obedience. That was what restrained sin. Makes sense, right? If you're saying that we're free from the law, then what's to restrain us from sin? After all, the thinking goes, grace couldn't restrain sin. Grace applies no penalty for disobedience. So maybe we need grace and law. Right? Maybe that's the solution. You need to take grace and then add to it the requirements for obedience and disobedience to keep that grace. Grace just needs a little bit of help. And by the way, that's exactly the kind of system, of course, that man would come up with, wouldn't it? I mean, doesn't that make perfect sense to you? By the way, that's exactly what the Catholic Church believes. Well, what does Paul say to that? Look in verse 14 with me. This is a, a verse we looked at last time. And, but there's something interesting in there that we didn't really talk about last time, and I wanted to bring it up to you this morning. Verse 14 says this, For sin shall not be mastered for you, over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Isn't that interesting? Paul's saying this, Sin will not be your master precisely because you are now under grace and not law. The opposite of what you might think. So how does that make any sense? That's the question that Paul sets up and answers in our text today. In fact, look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, What then, Paul asks, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? There's the question. So what's Paul's answer? Let's say it together. May it never be. Now, the the grace plus law thing is such a dangerous potential error that Paul is going to take actually the next two chapters to talk about this question. And his answer overall will have two parts. The first part of his answer will be that grace does constrain sin, and it's the only thing that can. That's the part we'll look at today. The second part of the answer in chapter 7 will be that the law does not constrain sin and never did. So if you put that together, you get the answer to your question. Grace does constrain sin and law does not. Exactly the opposite of what you might think. So how does that work? How does grace constrain sin? And this is how. I'll listen. I'll tell you the, the point of the passage really in you know, one sentence right now, and then we'll, we'll talk about it more. So th- this is the point. Don't miss it. Grace enslaves you to Christ. That's it. Grace enslaves you. You are not only saved by grace, you are enslaved by grace. In other words, true saving grace, listen, is always also enslaving grace. That's how grace, grace restrains you by enslaving you. Look in verse 16. Let's hear it from Paul. Verse 16 says this, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, notice how many options are there in this text? How many options? There are two options, right? There are only ever two options. You are either a slave of sin Or, in this passage, a slave of obedience, which is another way of saying slaves to God. See, the question is not whether you are enslaved or not, right? The question is who you are enslaved to. So, how can you tell by looking at someone who their master is? 
It's a simple, simple answer to that question. You simply look at who they are obeying, right? Everybody would know that who lived in that time. That's all. No slave can serve two masters. So the one that you are obeying must then be your master. That's why Paul is saying in the beginning of the verse, do you not know? This is an obvious thing for people who are familiar with slaves at the time. Everyone knows this. So Paul's point is this. You are showing whose slave you are by whom you obey. It's that simple. If you are obeying sin, then obviously you are a slave to sin. And if you are obeying God, then obviously you are a slave to God. And if your actions show you to be a slave of sin, then guess what your fate is? Your fate is death, spiritual and physical death. But on the other hand, if you are shown to be continually obeying God, then your path will be the one that leads to righteousness, it says in the passage. You will see righteousness in your life, righteous behavior, righteous character, righteous living. Your righteousness will be plain for all to see. Now really, Paul could have just stopped there with the answer to that question. But he's going to give us a little bit more information because he doesn't want to leave any room for confusion for us, okay? He wants to make totally sure that when you see a slave of God, you will recognize him as a slave of God. You will recognize the one when you see one. So in the remaining verses of this chapter, Paul is going to describe in more detail what it looks like to be a slave of God over and against being a slave to sin. He's going to use the slave, slavery to sin as a contrast for us to understand what it means to be a slave of God. So this is the outline for the, for the rest of the passage. We'll see four characteristics that are true of every slave of God. Four characteristics that are true of every slave of God. We find the first characteristic in verse 17. Let's read that first, verse 17. But thanks, to be, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. See, you were formerly a slave to sin, but your master changed, as we said, once Jesus bought you. And by the way, look at the verse. That's no thanks to you. It's thanks to who? God. Thanks be to God. He gets the credit for that. You had nothing to do with it. It was all by grace. And then Paul says, you were a slave of sin. So let's just talk about that for a minute. You know, you may not have felt like a slave of sin, but you were. This is how Titus 3.3 puts it. Describing unbelievers, he said, you were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending your life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I mean, just look at our world today. What does it look like? You see rampant adultery, rampant homosexuality that's celebrated, pornography and lewdness on every magazine and billboard, on every TV channel. There is no restraint. And if you want to talk about envy and hatefulness, that's just the norm. If you just look at the internet for 10 seconds, you'll be exposed to hatefulness across political lines, hatefulness across racial lines, hatefulness across economic lines, Hatefulness across religious lines. You see, envy, arrogance, anger, slander, greed, just sitting out there. And you know, there's so much of this stuff that 
to our shame, we're not even horrified by it anymore, are we? It's just normal to us. You see, that is what it looks like when an entire world is enslaved to sin. As a slave of sin, you were utterly depraved. It says in the Bible, every intent of the thoughts of your heart were only wicked continually. That's used to describe the world pre-flood, but it's not better after the flood. Romans 8-7 says that every thought in your mind was hostile to God. Every thought. And you were utterly unable to please God in any way. As a slave of sin, listen, you did sin's bidding 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That is true slavery. Jesus even says in John 8-34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Sin is slavery. It's the worst kind of slavery because you often don't even know you're enslaved. That's only because you so willingly present yourself to your master for obedience. But if you could see your sin and then try to stop, you will find that you can't stop. You're chained to it. But for a believer, that is all in the past. Look back in verse 17. What happened? You became obedient, what? From the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And that brings us to the first of the four characteristics of every slave of God. Number one is this. Every slave of God is characterized by an eager obedience to God's word. Every slave of God is characterized by an eager obedience to God's word. There's a progression in this verse that I want you to see. First, it says, your obedience is now from the heart. This is an eager obedience. If you're a slave of God, obedience isn't some distasteful chore to you. It's a joy. You desperately want to obey God with every fiber of your being. And what are you obedient to in the verse? Look at verse 17. It says you're obedient to the what? The form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, this word for form is really speaking of a mold that you would pour molten metal into and make tools or weapons. It's a mold. It's a mold that shapes something. The form of teaching, then, is referring to God's word, the Bible, into which you are poured and molded and shaped. It reshapes you. And this wasn't your decision. Look, you were committed to it, right? That's what the verse says. You were committed to it by somebody outside of you. It was God. God was the one who poured you to mold you and shape you into the shape of his word. And now look at verse 18. This is the consequence of that. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. See, in response to having been shaped by God's word, you start to do righteousness, experiencing righteousness in your lives. The same way, in verse 18, that you were once enslaved to sin and compelled to sin, you are now enslaved to righteousness and compelled to righteousness. See, that's the progression of a true believer. First, you have from your heart a desire to obey. You are then committed by God to be molded and shaped under his word, right? And then finally, this molding results 
and development of righteous character that flushes out in righteous actions in your life. That's the progression. That's the progression of every true slave of God. And this is all a joy to you. This is a labor of joy. So let's just pause here and ask, does this look like you? Do you love the word of God? Do you love to come to church to hear the word of God preached? And do you take every opportunity to be shaped and molded by it? Do you hide it in your heart and let it transform your thinking? And then after hearing it, learning what your master wants you to do, do you then find yourself obeying it? If not, then I want you to think that about the possibility you might not be a slave to God at all. You might still be a slave to sin. So then a slave of God is characterized by an obedience to God's word. Now, in the next verse, Paul says something a bit strange that, uh, look at briefly, look at verse 19. He says this, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Now, why did Paul say that? Well, Paul just wants to clarify. See, he's using the language of slavery, right? But he also wants to make sure the Romans don't misunderstand and wrongly associate with God all of the negative connotations of human slavery, like the abuse, the cruelty, the unfairness, the degradation, or the fear. None of that is in view here. The weakness of the flesh, that that, that term, just means that Paul is using an earthly analogy from their everyday life so that they can understand a relationship between a believer and God, a heavenly reality. But this analogy is not a perfect analogy. In reality, there is much more to your relationship to God than slavery. I just want you to make sure that you understand that. There is also citizenship. There is also sonship, right? As the picture is in Romans 8. But, you know, I think Paul and, in fact, the rest of the New Testament writers use the word slavery because, let's face it, we need that picture sometimes, don't we? Sometimes obedience is just not the naturalist or the most natural thing to us, not all the time. And in those times when it's hard to obey, I think this picture of slavery really helps us. When when delight and your passion fail you, when sin seems enticing, you are to remember that you are a slave of Christ. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You are Christ's slave. And really, in fact, your duty is to obey. I think we need that as sinners sometimes. We need sometimes to just know that it's our duty and we need to do it. In fact, Luke 17.10, Jesus says this. He says, So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only which we ought to have done. We've just done our duty as your slaves, Jesus. Nothing more. And sometimes we do need that. All right, so, so far, Paul has described to us what a slave looks like, someone who is obedient from the heart from, to, to the word of God, who is a slave of righteousness. But in the next verse, God, Paul now goes from description to command. This is actually the only command in our passage today, so you better pay attention to it. He says this, you're a slave of righteousness, right? So go and act like one. Here it is, verse 19. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Here's the command. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in what? Sanctification. All right. 
And so here we find the second characteristic of every true slave of God. It is this. Every slave of God obeys the command to be aggressive in good works. Every slave of God obeys the command to be aggressive in good works. We're commanded as slaves to be aggressive in our good works. But first, Paul says this. He describes your life as comparison as when you were a slave. When you were a slave to sin, you presented the members of your body to impurity. And there's no way to avoid this. That word impurity is an explicit reference to sexual immorality. That's what that is. In fact, the same word Paul uses to describe lustful passion in 1 Corinthians 4.3. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1.24, where he says that God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 1 Corinthians 6 gives us a list of what this might look like. Verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Those won't inherit the kingdom of God. Sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, homosexual activity. These sins are are especially offensive to God because they sin against the body that God gave you. 1 Corinthians 6.18 explains this. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins what? Against his own body. There is something especially abominable to God about polluting your body that God created for you and gave to you and entrusted to you and told you to handle and honor. To pollute your body is to take God's stewardship to you and to throw it back in his face, right? Yet slaves of sin, the Bible says, pursue these things with greed, greedily. That's what it says in Ephesians. And then in the, back in Romans 6, it, after it says impurity, it says lawlessness, right? That's what it, you were like as a slave of sin. That literally refers to any deed that rebels against God's standard. Anything that breaks God's law. Thieves, the covetous, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says that. And just a few examples. And there are many more. We could add to that list those who engage in, from Romans 1.29, greed, envy, murder, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, the arrogant, disobedience to parents. That's always your favorite one as a parent. And the point is, if you look back in Romans 6.19, all these sins did, all they did for you was to lead you further and further into lawlessness, right? The point that Paul is making is that the lawlessness just progresses from bad to worse as you indulge in it more and more. Sin always leads you to more and more sin. An an uncontrollable death spiral that just pushes you further and further down into depravity. That is, what it gave, that is what it did for you. But listen, for believers, that is what you were. Now listen, as a slave of God, you cannot and you must not do those things anymore. Instead, here is what God commands. He wants you to take all that energy and all that aggression that you used to pursue sin with, and then he wants you to 
pursue righteousness with that much abandon, right? With that much energy, with the same tireless effort and greediness that you used to use to present the members of your body to sin, now present the members of your body to righteousness. Just think about what the opposite of all those things were that we read. Instead of pursuing immorality, pursue godly sexual relations within the context of marriage. Instead of pursuing all of those deeds of lawlessness, pursue the works of righteousness that are pleasing to God. That's the command. Pursue those deeds of righteousness. And you may ask then, what do those deeds of righteousness look like? What am I to pursue? Really, to understand the whole of that, you have to be poured into the molds of the Bible so that your thinking can be informed. But we can quickly just leaf through the rest of Romans and get a quick understanding of what Paul is saying. See, in chapter 10, Paul tells us to bring the gospel to those who have not heard, right? Preach the gospel. That's a righteous deed. That's one of the things it means to pursue a deed of righteousness. In chapter 12, he tells us then to serve the church. We all have different gifts, he says. Now exercise them within the body of Christ. Serve God's church. Romans 12, 7. He speaks of the gifts of serving, of teaching, of exhortation, of giving, of leading, of diligence, of mercy. Paul says, serve one another through those gifts. That is, whatever is within your ability to do in the church, do those. Those are righteous deeds. It's righteous to serve in the nursery. It's righteous to serve in Kids for Truth. It's righteous to serve in the kitchen or to be an usher. That's a righteous deed. When you commit yourself to the service of God's people, that is pursuing righteousness. I hope you understand that. And then in verse 10 of Romans 12, he continues. Listen to what he says. He says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in, what's that word? Diligence, right? Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. See, this is what he's saying. Love one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality. And do all of these things with diligence and fervence of spirit. See, that's the point. You don't pursue righteous deeds by yourself at home. Right? That's not what it means to pursue righteous deeds. And to pursue righteous deeds, likewise, doesn't just mean that you, do, you don't do the things that are bad. That's not what it means either. If you don't do any of those sins, but you just sit at home and watch sports, that's not righteous. To be righteous is to pursue what God has told us. Share the gospel, serve the church. That's it. It's the body of Christ. So are you doing that? Are you doing that with the same greediness and reckless abandon that you used to use to pursue sin? Ask yourself that question. Not just when it strikes your fancy or or when it fits neatly into your schedule. The command of the Bible is to pursue those things, listen, to the point of exhaustion. Be zealous for good deeds. That's in Titus 2.12. You can't avoid this language. Exert great effort. Yes, it says effort to these things. Be very busy with your master's work. Remember, God created you for good works, right? We saw that in Ephesians 2.10. And in 1 Corinthians 15.58, you're called to abound 
in the work of the Lord, knowing that your, what's that word? Toil is not in vain. All, that, that language is all over the Bible. Work hard. It never says to take a day off, right? If you live this way, you will not be comfortable. It won't be a comfortable life for you. But you know what? God didn't call you to a comfortable life or an easy life. Where did we get that idea? Jesus didn't have a comfortable life, did he? Paul didn't seem to have a very comfortable life either. And really, I, fear, I think it's fair to say that if you are comfortable then you're probably not working hard enough for the kingdom of God. So fellow slaves of God, do you hear the command of your master? Be aggressive in your pursuit of deeds of righteousness with ardent passion. Present every fiber of your being to your master for service. If you mean you have to cut some entertainment out of your life or some recreation, you know what? Just do that. Just cut them out. Don't be about your business. Be about the business of your master as proper for a slave. That's what God, your master, requires of you. And listen, that is also what is good for you. It's all good for you. In fact, let's see this. Let's look back down at verse 19 now. Um, Actually, Paul says that if you obey this command, if you flee deeds of lostness and pursue hard to use the member of your body for righteousness. It will lead to what? What's the last word in that verse? Sanctification, right? Now, just as pursuing hard after sin led you to more and more lawlessness, pursuing hard after righteousness will lead, Paul is saying, to more and more righteousness. All right? You will experience in your daily life more and more freedom from sin, more and more righteousness. Now, let me just ask you a question. Who is this sanctification for? Is it for us or is it for God? It's for us. It's always been for us. And please don't miss this. Look in verse 20. Let's read that. And we read from 20 to 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your what? Benefit. Resulting in sanctification. Let's stop right there. Whose benefit is it? It's yours. It's your benefit. That brings us to the third characteristic of every true slave of God. And this is it. Every slave of God is motivated by the new possibility of a well-lived life. Every slave of God is motivated by the new possibility of a well-lived life. I mean, see, we often think of this whole sanctification thing as, I'm just doing God a favor, right? This is is all just kind of for God. So we think, but remember, God is not like that cruel slave master of sin. Every command God gives you was for your good, right? He desires your good, your joy, and your benefit, doesn't he? It's for you. And look back at verse 20. Paul says, remember, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Now, that word free is not used in a good context here, right? Basically, he's saying, you did nothing righteousness. Now, you did nothing righteous. You had no relationship with righteousness at all. Only sin, right? You only serve one master. You can't serve two. So you serve sin. And then it goes on in verse 21. And Paul asks this. Just says, look, 
what benefit, and literally that word is fruit, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? That is, how did that work out for you? How did that life of sin work for you? In your former slavery to sin, what good did you harvest from any of that, from your sexual immorality and your lawlessness? And the answer is what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, all those things are nothing but a cause of shame to you, right? I mean, is there, think back, is there any portion of your life before coming to Christ that causes you to say, boy, I'm proud of that immoral act. You know, I'm glad that I did that deed of lawlessness. I'll go back and do that again, you know? Is that, is that, is that at all true for you? No. Your wicked deeds never brought you anything but regret and shame, right? In fact, I would bet, I would bet that you would do anything to be able to go back and take back some of those deeds, wouldn't you? To undo some things, to unsay some things, to unsee some things. And if you had stayed in that state, Paul says in verse 1 that nothing but death and hell would have been down that path for you. Nothing. There's nothing down there but death. That was you before. But then, Paul turns the coin over again. Verse 22. But now, you have been freed from sin. And look at the words. What did that say? Enslaved to God. There it is. Black and white. You are enslaved to God. You see, This enslavement is actually God's grace to you. It's just grace. Because once you are enslaved to God, you, desi- you derive your what? Your benefit, right? Your life as a slave to sin was fruitless and shameful, but your life enslaved to God now is filled with barrelfuls of good fruit. That's what it's saying. The point is this. Look, you as a believer get to bear good fruit. You get to do that. You get to live a life now, listen, without regrets. You get to live a clean, with a clean, sorry, a clean and quiet conscience that's not constantly accusing you. You get to live a purpose-filled life full of joyful and fruitful ministry to God's people. You get to be the guy who comes to his end of his life and says, that was a well-lived life. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. That life counted. I saw progressive victory over sin, and by God's grace, God used me to share the gospel and to build his church. No regrets. And then with a smile on your face, you will enter joyfully into your rest. My friends, listen. That is what you get to do as a Christian. You get to do that. And that is all what is wrapped up in that word, sanctification. That word that, we also often think is something that we're just doing to God as a favor, right? That is good for us, and it is worth the striving. It is well worth it. That is what sanctification will do for you. I mean, how much do you think people in the world would pay for that? That kind of peace and joy and purpose. You know, that's what everybody in this world is looking for, but nobody knows how to find, right? You can't buy this, but you... Your master gives that to you for free as a gift. 
See, God doesn't need your service. He doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need even for you to share the gospel with anybody. He doesn't need a thing from you. But he wants you to be sanctified for your sake. For your sake. It is his gift to you. Every slave then is motivated by the new possibility of a well-lived, a well-lived life by the grace of God. But you know, that's not all you get. It's not all you get. There's a last characteristic of every true slave of God, and that's this. Every slave of God looks forward to his eternal reward. Look back in verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, what? Eternal life. There it is. The end result of sanctification is glorification. That's what sanctification is pointing to and will lead to. And that's just the start, guys. One day, your sanctification will burst forth in indescribable glory. You see, it will not always be a daily struggle against sin. It will not always be a struggle for self-control. It will not always be three steps forward and two steps back. It will not always be self-denial and taking up your cross. It will not always be hard work and sleepless nights. Someday soon, it will be nothing but pure joy, pure peace, and pure rest. And then Paul caps it all off in verse 23. Let's read that. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, this is the verse that we all use for evangelism, isn't it? And that's fine, but I want you to notice that in this context, Paul is actually talking to who? Believers, right? He wants to encourage believers. How is, that, how is he doing that? If you remember... This whole passage, Paul's been ping-ponging back and forth from slavery to sin to slavery to God, right? Throughout this whole passage. He's been contrasting for us two paths, two masters, and here he finishes the contrast. See, Paul shows that the path you used to be on, enslaved to sin, resulting in a life of futility and misery, that life will just lead to your reward, which is eternal death. That's the path you were on. That's path A. And that's what you deserve. That's your wage. But believer, when Jesus Christ brought you out of the slave market, you were placed on the completely different path. Your new path is still slavery, but it is to a good master God, resulting in a life of benefit, rich sanctification and satisfaction. And then at the end of this well-lived life, your master gives you not a wage, but a free gift. See, this slave master gives his slaves gifts. How backwards is that? Slaves deserve nothing. You've done nothing but your rightful duty, right? But out of nowhere, to your surprise and your wonder, you get a gift. And you find, to your astonishment, that your gift is the best you could ever get. It's eternal life. Do you see the stark difference between these two paths? Point is this, don't ever cast a backward glance to your old master's sin. Don't ever cast a backward glance there because there is nothing there for you but death. Turn to your new master. And finally, this gift, eternal life, is given only in who? At the end of the verse, it's given in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Only in Jesus, in union with him, enslaved to him, can we, can we obtain eternal life.
And you know, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already demonstrated for us, right? Remember when we studied Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7, what did it say? It said, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a what? A slave, right? That's the word. And then it says this, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus, your master, took on himself the form of a slave. He gave us his rights, he gave up his privileges, he gave up his life, and he took up slavery to serve who's good? Your good, right? And you could say that before you were even born, Jesus willingly from the heart, enslaved himself for you. The good master himself became a slave to the slaves. I mean, what master would die for his slaves? That's totally backwards. But Jesus, your master, died for you so that you could have eternal life. Words just can't express how good and kind your master is. It's far beyond what you could imagine. So how could you do any less but to give up everything to serve him? And you know what? You will find, you always find this, you will find that when you give up everything for Jesus, it is you who will benefit. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25. He says this, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, right? My friends, at the end of the path of slavery and hard work and righteous deeds, you will find your life that you've been looking for all along. And after that, you will find waiting for you eternal life. It's just amazing grace of God. So believers, we've seen what being a slave to God looks like. He was characterized by an eager obedience to God's word. He obeys the command to be aggressive in good works. He is motivated by the new possibility of a well-lived life. And then he looks forward to his eternal reward. And it is all by the grace of God. So I want you to look at yourself in the mirror of this passage. Does this resemble you at all? Have you been enslaved by grace to God? Or possibly are you still enslaved to your sin? There are only two options. When Jesus returns, you will either hear, well done, good and faithful slave. Or he will say to you, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness, right? See, there is no middle ground. There's no middle ground. I pray that if you are still a slave to sin, then you will be bought today by the good master if you would repent and believe in the gospel. But if... After looking at the passage, you find yourself to be a slave of God. Then I invite you as a church, having been enslaved by grace, let us now push each other on to work hard, to joyfully present our members to God as the slaves of righteousness. Amen? Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. And I think we're going to sing stronger. Right? Sing one more song. Okay. Let's pray. Father, as we close our service this morning, I just want to um, thank you, Lord, for your word and for the goodness that you've given to us, that, Lord, 
even the work you've called us to do is for our good and for our benefit. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, each one of us, to examine ourselves, inspect our lives, to understand whether or not we've been living the way you've called us to as your slaves. In Christ's name, amen.